say a, a few words of introduction uh, to Billy Flesh. Uh, Billy was already worked hard this afternoon at a at a workshop um, for uh, I guess almost went almost two hours, mm -hmm. a very full time. And the only constraint on it was that we couldn't allow it to run into this event. Um, uh, and that that was discussion uh, of, a, of a range of issues that I guess will also be touched on today. Just touched. Just touched. Um, I, I do promise that Paradise Lost will be reached at some point uh, in the talk, and we didn't touch on that today uh, in, the, in the workshop. Um, I'll just remind you that um, uh, Professor Flesch teaches in English at um, Brandeis University. Um, he's the author of a, a lot of works. I'll just mention uh, two books. Um, the first, uh, Generosity and the Limits of Authority, Shakespeare, Herbert, and Milton. And uh, the more recent uh, book, uh, Comeuppance, Costly Signaling, Altruistic Punishment, and Other Biological Components of Fiction. And I guess the talk today is part of a, some of an extension of the more recent book, but the books um, have a continuity uh, in, in themselves as well. I'm not going to say much uh, about that work. I did mention in the um, uh, for the workshop that the, that the words generosity and altruism uh, appear in the titles of Billy's works uh, seems absolutely startling to me. They're not, they're not the first terms that come to mind in describing the form of life called literature departments in the last few decades. So um, that was some, uh, somewhat difficult to, to cope with. Um, comeuppance is a somewhat old-fangled word, um, and I, I think um, deliberately. And uh, the notion of literary biology is sort of newfangled, but, um, but having a certain uh, continuity uh, as well with the early days of uh, literary history. Um, as we talked a little bit in the session, my favorite version of this bringing together of literary and biology by way of creative writer is uh, the work of Stanislav Lem, as I mentioned in Imaginary Magnitude, a collection of essays of introductions to books that have never been written with a splendid introduction itself. Um, tells not merely of bacteria who evolved to write literature in English um, through a, a forced march through evolution, uh, but locates our modernity and its reflexive forms very exactly. As Lem puts it, in the, in the Eocene period, there were no seminars about whether to advance to the Pleistocene. Or <laughs> they just didn't do that, but, but we do. Um, and Perhaps, I don't know if it'll come up in the talk today, but I know it comes up very powerfully in the, in the comeuppance book. Uh, the models of signaling, costly signaling, mutual recognition, feedback, and reflexivity are the formal constituents of many orders of things today, from, say, cybernetics and biology to systems theory, and of course to our account of uh, literature under the conditions of modernity. Uh, which is to say um, literature uh, or the work of art um, as in some way about its own conditions of production. Um, there are a range of ways of going about this. One uh, consists at least in part in a kind of bid for scientific aura in literary studies and that's probably most prominent in media studies these days. And the other is the reverse move let's say, a bid for literary aura in science studies. 
and maybe the uh, uh, the most uh, um, powerful or forceful practitioner of that right now is uh, Bruno Latour and his work. Um, my sense is that Billy Flesh's work um, works both sides of the and manages the traffic in, in both directions with a, a, a texture and um, and uh, richness uh, that's that's pretty rare. Um, Perhaps the, the costly signaling between literature and science today um, is, is, a, is a marking of a place where a lot of things uh, remain to be uh, worked out, or what we used to call worked through. Um, uh, but um, I'll just see what you have to say. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. There's the inevitable handout, um, which you get to. Everyone gets one sheet. There are a lot more sheets than people. Um, I'm just going to stand up here, if that's okay, um, because I was going to... I'm going to get some water, too. Um, I generally don't read papers anymore, um, but talk them out, which I think is a much better thing to do. Um, but I'm not sufficiently... Um, Confident that I could put that I can put this stuff um, um, economically, um, unless I do actually read the paper. But I'll just um, give you a little bit of background. Um, the Darwinian or the literary Darwinian stuff in this paper is all in the footnotes, and that's partly by design. So I'm not. Don't worry, I'm not going to read you the footnotes. Um, that's partly by design because. Um, what got me into thinking about issues of literary Darwinism was that I thought that other people who were writing about it were um, just really, really, really bad about um, having a sense of what literature was. And it seemed to me that on the one hand, Darwin was, um, or some version of Darwinian evolution was true, um, and that therefore, um, if Darwinian evolution made impossible the kinds of interpretations that um, all sorts of literary theorists and literary critics had been doing down not only the decades from the publication of, of grammatology, let's say, um, but down the centuries, um, that, if, that um, if, as a lot of people were arguing, those interpretations were misguided because humans couldn't be like that, um, that would be an unfortunate thing because those interpretations were so good. Um, even if you disagreed with them, they were so good, they were so exciting, they were so intellectually um, dynamic and intellectually provocative. Um, and it seemed that there was a whole lot of resentment going on among people who were doing literary Darwinism. Um, and yet, it also seemed to me that um, Darwin's scientific theories were um, essentially more or less right, um, or what's known as the modern synthesis, um, was essentially more or less right. And when I say it seemed to me that, it, that, that this was essentially more or less right, I'm not saying, ah, oh, but the scientists neglected to note. Um, they didn't. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really um, good theory. So the question was, um, is there a way, and is it useful if there is a way? Two different questions. One, is there a way of um, being sure that the kinds of things that most literary Darwinists 
think they're disproving are not actually disproved by um, understanding the evolutionary argument. Um, and that's what I wanted to see for myself, um, whether the evolutionary argument and, let's say, the philosophical, the broadly philosophical arguments that I was interested in um, were compatible with each other. Um, but trying to find that out for myself, um, what I came to see was not only were they, as, as far as I could tell and as far as I'm going to claim, compatible with each other, but that also they illuminated each other that um, people who are trying to do what's now called evolutionary psychology, which is a very iffy field, um, but a field with some um, genuine insight and interest, could learn something if they really understood more about how literature worked. And um, people who were thinking philosophically and um, critically about literature um, might get some really interesting ideas by seeing some of the Darwinian background. And then the third thing, just to frame this, is my general interest is in the question of vicarious experience. Um, that is, why it is that we get emotionally involved in the experience of other people, even if those other people um, are not only um, not um, in our social circuit, not um, among our group in any um, clear-cut and obvious way, but if they don't know and can't know that we exist. Um, reading history in the lives of the dead, reading fiction in the lives of people who, on one philosophical account, fictional characters, are only real in some other possible world, but not in the actual world that we live in. Um, and so the question of vicarious experience, it, um, for me, um, the uh, literary Darwinistic, uh, or the Darwinistic, not the literary Darwinistic, but the Darwinistic reading I was doing, um, actually had um, really interesting things to say about the question of vicarious experience. A question that I also approach, I should say, psychoanalytically. Um, one of the things that literary Darwinism wants to do is to say that Freudian psychoanalysis is completely empty. Many of you may think it's completely empty. I don't think it's completely empty. I think it's um, replete with insight. And um, I think that, again, these are insights which are um, not only compatible, but enriched and enriching when um, brought into juxtaposition with, um, with evolutionary psychology. So um, those are all things that um, I want to lump rather than split. And um, in particular, what I want to um, just say very briefly that the account of narrative that I give in comeuppance comes from the idea of what is called altruistic punishment. And the idea of altruistic punishment, um, put very, very briefly, is that um, in order for humans to be able to trust each other, we have to know that anyone who violates our trust is unlikely, at some level of unlikeliness, is unlikely to get away with that violation. But even if we are not the ones who can hold that person to account, that someone else will care enough to hold that person to account. Um, even if they're not involved, they'll get involved. And that there's something about um, how human social groups work, where there is this um, people getting involved to um, prevent gross violations of trust. And we have to trust, therefore, that others will 
um, take steps to prevent gross violations of trust. And there's a kind of self-sustaining system of a self-sustaining circuit or um, um, uh, branching out of people trusting each other to um, punish anyone who violates trust and um, trusting that others will also punish anyone who doesn't punish anyone who violates trust and so on. And um, that, that, that gets encapsulated or that gets focused in the idea of altruistic punishment. Um, one of the people who's written about it most powerfully and most interestingly is actually here in the anthropology department, um, Rob Boyd. And um, <coughs> um, his work was um, of great interest to me. But so what I'm interested in here in this paper um, mainly in Paradise Lost, although I'll talk a little bit about Shakespeare as well and also some other Milton. Um, what I'm interested in here is the notion of punishment in um, Milton and the relation and of the notion of punishment to vindication. Um, those are the things that I think come together in narrative. And the biological and literary psychological argument that's behind it um, gives a reason why vindication, punishment, and narrative um, should go together, why vindication and vindictiveness um, should be sometimes hard to tell from each other as they're very, um, uh, as the vocabulary of, of their um, etymologies suggests. Um, vindication means the victory of justice, DK, um, the principle of justice is victorious. Um, vindictiveness is somehow a vituperative spin put on a sense of deserved vindication. Um, it's punishing when you don't get vindicated or imagining that if you're vindictive enough that will get you vindication. These things become precarious and risky um, um, versions of each other and one can collapse into another, which is part of the risk of human social interaction and human social life. So one danger of any application of some um, theory of the mind or theory of human interaction, as you all know from some other field like psychoanalysis, um, in this case like evolutionary psychology, is um, that you risk sounding as though you think that Shakespeare, Freud said that the poets were there before him, that Shakespeare really was there before him, and that Shakespeare was essentially giving Freudian theory lightly allegorized. Um, and that's clearly not true. That's a danger I would like to avoid. Um, but what I do think is that a verisimilitudinous account of <coughs> how humans interact um, with very wide um, um, slack in what counts as verisimilitude. A verisimilitudinous account of how humans interact um, and also how audiences interact with the human or anthropomorphic figures they see in conflict in a narrative. Um, the very fact that it's verisimilitudinous will mean that on some level, um, the kinds of insights a writer or a fictionist, to use Trollope's great word, um, has about how humans interact um, will be accurate. 
and um, the kinds of things that make literary works um, convincing and emotionally gripping and powerful um, has something to do with the kinds of things that make um, all our stories about real people, about people we know, all our interactions in which we describe what people did, um, effective interactions. So, and I'll just say one other thing. Um, one, Wittgenstein has a great um, general um, uh, maxim for how to do philosophy or how not to get stuck doing philosophy, which is he says, um, do not take it as a matter of course, but be surprised that we behave in such and such a, wor a way. Um, the most natural ways that we have of behaving are the ones, in a sense, that um, may require the most thought to um, understand fully or to explain. Um, so here's what I think is really interesting about narrative that we do take as a matter of course, um, but that um, I'm trying not to take as a matter of course. And that is that we treat in narratives, and by we, you can challenge me on who this we is, um, but I'll just say boldly that we treat um, narratives, um, narrative situations, as situations in which the various, um, let's say, archetypal figures within narrative. Um, if you um, put it in terms of, of um, Hollywood screenplays, the archetypal figures in a Hollywood screenplay are the main character, the opposition, the objective, and the window. Those are the four basic kinds of character in a screenplay. So the main character wants something, often another person, if it's a love story. Um, Rick in Casablanca wants Ilsa. Um, the opposition is um, Victor Laszlo, who's in his way, and um, the window character, who's someone he can talk to about these things and who, whose um, presence there can make it possible for us to understand what it is that Rick wants, is Captain Renault. Um, all those figures <coughs> are interestingly um, figures that we think of as human in the same way, anthropomorphic in the same way in a fiction. The interesting thing, and I think this is what we shouldn't take as a matter of course, is that we're as concerned about, um, or at least concerned in the same way, about what the villain is thinking as we are about what the hero is thinking, as we are about what an observer, a hero's um, buddy or friend is thinking, as we are about what um, what um, uh, uh, the person, the hero, is interested in having some relationship to is thinking. Villains have to be human, too, for stories to be interesting. Um, the exceptions prove the rule. An exception, for example, um, what might seem an exception, is um, the Jack London story, To Build a Fire. There are actually two versions of that story, but in the version with the... Um, with the ending in which the man in that story dies. The villain in that story is the cold, um, and he is trying to build a fire, and the cold is stopping him from building a fire. And the story becomes more and more effective as we more and more, and the story more and more anthropomorphizes the cold. Um, there's also a dog there who is the window character who also gets anthropomorphized. Um, there's something about fiction um, which is 
I think should be surprising, which is that, that it's not interesting if the opposition or the villains are just forces of nature. And um, this is also all in the footnotes, but um, they're, they're very interesting ways that we respond to differently um, when our opposition is human or a person of some sort and when our opposition is just the sheer materiality of the world. And um, so it's that fact that um, brings together the idea of justice and the idea of punishment. Punishment takes as human the figure who is being punished. It matters that that figure is punished rather than simply vaporized or annihilated for the kinds of satisfaction that narratives give. So that's my background. That's, that's um, a lot of the stuff in the footnotes. And um, now um, the paper. The most basic template for every interesting narrative situation is a template of expected vindication. Someone is misunderstood and expects, often with desperate wishfulness, those who misunderstand her to come to see and to acknowledge that misunderstanding. If that happens, she achieves narrative resolution, turns an event into something that has the shape of narrative and that offers itself for narration to herself and others. The narration to others, by herself or by a third person, is part of the acknowledgement, part of the vindication. The situation is moderately complicated. The recounted narrative begins the process of vindication with the fact that its hearers are invested in it, in that process, and want to see her vindicated. They expect her vindication vicariously. The idea of vindication and the idea of vicarious experience, which is so essential to narrative, are two sides of the same coin. The audience wants to see her to be vindicated, and she also wants the audience's desire to see her vindicated vindicated in its turn. Such acknowledgment has something of the force of reparation, so that vindication, even in tragedy, remains true to its root meaning, the victory of justice. Hamlet dies, but Horatio will tell his story, and in the meantime, Laertes, Gertrude, and Claudius are variously brought to acknowledge their own failures of judgment, failures to have taken the measure of Hamlet's deeper perspective and insight, deeper because he is a deeper character than they knew. And you know that, of course, that's the first thing Hamlet claims on stage, is that he's deeper than he appears to be. He proves it. Narrative, therefore, organizes both plot and character through the twin concepts of judgment and vindication. Characters whose judgment we most want to see vindicated will be the heroes in the technical but also the colloquial sense. Their judgments may deepen and change over time, but the way they judge others, the values that their judgments imply from the start, makes them the focus not only of our interest, but of our concern. Their vindication means not just the triumph, but the just triumph of their characters. We want to see this happen. We want to see this happen. And narrative anxiety is an anxiety about whether and how those characters will be vindicated. The question whether and how those characters will be vindicated, and the often changing ways that we expect such vindication to come, provide the motive and the structure of plot. We can compress still further the nature of our interest in plot. Plots all appeal to the pleasures of anticipated gratification. You'll see. 
There are, of course, various basic plots, but they can be distinguished one from another more or less through the different characters and people referred to by the you in you'll see. There are several reasons to think that all the kinds of figures before whom Hamlet will eventually be vindicated, kin and kind, are more or less the same, have more or less the same importance in the dynamics of vindication. Claudius the villain, Laertes the failed friend, Gertrude the desperately concerned but overly skeptical mother, Horatio the skeptical but lucid friend, the mutes and audiences to the act, whether their attitude has conformed to Osric's toadying or to the love that most people bear to Hamlet, Fortinbras, the intuitively accurate judge, whom Horatio's narrative will bring up to speed, and our fellow audience members, the other real people in the real theater who are watching the play, at least as I conceive them, before whom my hero's judgment, and therefore my own rash gamble on his vindication, will also be vindicated. It's also important to see those before whom Hamlet is not finally vindicated, even though with them he attempts and often succeeds at partially vindicatory moments. The minions, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, confuted after the mousetrap, but not decisively. Polonius, dead, but without any sense of what was wrong with his own meddling. The ghost, who finds Hamlet apt, but who disappears from the play with Polonius. And of course, Ophelia and her gravediggers. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go to it, and like the others, they die or disappear without feeling that Hamlet has been proved right without feeling that the justice of his cause and of his attitudes has been proved. But they are not near Hamlet's heart. He needs no vindication from them. Polonius and Ophelia represent Hamlet's failure to be fully vindicated, or perhaps the failure even of full vindication to achieve true justice, which is perhaps why Hamlet or King Lear has to be a tragedy and why the Winter's Tale has to end in melancholy. The ghost may go further still, representing the failure even of true justice to be truly just. This too would be a lesson repeated in The Winter's Tale. And those figures who count, those figures who are near to Hamlet's heart, but in whose minds Hamlet is not vindicated, may be summed up by the gravedigger who knows but doesn't care whether Hamlet is vindicated or not. Or even by Yorick, who might have cared, but unlike the ghost whom he replaces in Act Five, can never know. The point of this taxonomy is to show that very complex structures of character and plot can derive from the idea of vindication. And this is to say nothing of the other characters in Hamlet who seek vindication as well, characters whose own narratives show them as partial successes in their desires. The ghost who wants vindication from Hamlet, Polonius who seeks it from Claudius and Gertrude, Ophelia before Hamlet, Polonius, and Laertes. Claudius, when he stands up to Laertes. Laertes, in confronting first Claudius and then Hamlet. Those who don't, the dispassionate Horatio and the still more dispassionate Gravedigger, are ultimately placed in the position of judges who measure how far vindication is possible and how important possible vindication finally turns out to be. I start out with this brief account of Hamlet because I think it's a digest of universal narrative expectations and motives for interest, and so it provides a helpful way to see, through contrast, some of the deepest, most powerful, most thematically important innovations of Paradise Lost. 
Let's turn first to that hoariest of chestnuts, the parsing of Milton's declared intention in writing Paradise Lost, and here they're just bits and fragments on the um, handout, to justify the ways of God to men. We know, more or less, that the primary meaning of the line is glossed by the chorus's similar declaration in Samson, just are the ways of God and justifiable to men. That is to say, all of God's ways are just, and men can be brought to see this universal fact. This reading is confirmed by the fact that Milton alludes to Psalm 145, sung in Revelation as well. Um, these are the Geneva Bible versions of Psalm 145 and of Revelation. Um, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works, is Psalm 145, and then Revelation. And they sung the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, King of Saints. In Psalms, the voice is human still, but in Revelation it's the seven angels who are singing, and they aren't particularly focusing on the ways of God to men, but on God's works and ways in general. Nevertheless, one can't quite rule out the other reading, that what Milton intends to justify are the ways of God that concern his treatment of men. Raphael's warning to Adam about not worrying about the possible inhabitants of other worlds fits with this second interpretations. Of other creatures, as him pleases best, wherever placed, let him dispose. And even in Samson, this possibility can be seen in the chorus's further argument against trying to confine the interminable and tie him to his own prescript, who made our laws to bind us not himself, and hath full right to exempt whom so it pleases him by choice. God has an axiomatic right to treat us as he does, or to lift certain of the duties his laws have imposed upon us, and that right is all we need to understand, need to understand for us to know that we can't bind him by his own prescript either, that we can't set ourselves up to judge whether he acts according to some independent standard of justice by which all his ways could be justified. At issue here is a version of what's come to be called the Euthyphro Dilemma, after um, the Socratic dialogue Euthyphro, 10a if you're counting, where Socrates asks whether the gods love the pious, that is roughly speaking, divinely ratified good, whether they love the pious because it is independently worth loving, or whether what makes it worth loving is that the gods love it. This question is easily mapped onto debates about Calvinist predestination. Justifying all the ways of God requires some independent idea of justice to which God conforms. With the question of this conformity amenable to independent judgment by human judges. If God's ways can be justified, it's because we can look at what justice would have to be and then judge whether God is acting in the way that he would have to act if he were to be just. Justifying the ways God treats men doesn't imply any independent judgment of the way he treats other creatures in the universe. For the chorus, that is on the other hand, if it's simply the way he treats men, for the chorus, the justice of his treatment of the rest of the universe is tautological. God has a right to act in conformity with whatever he wills, 
since justice is his own creation and simply means conformity with his will no matter what he wills. His precepts are the expression of his will, and if they do not bind him, that is because whatever he does is equally, and by definition, the omnipotent expression of his will. The justice of his treatment of us is also tautological, but that tautology is a complex one, since it includes the possibility of its own justification. That, at least, is what Milton is saying. By expressing his will about the doings of us human in the form of precepts, which we may freely obey, precepts which morally require us but do not force us to do certain things, he makes justice, consisting as it does in conformity to whatever he wills, accessible to us by allowing us to accede to his will. His will is just by definition, but that's a cold <coughs> comfort. But he goes farther. He makes that justice something in which our own wills can share, because he has placed us in a position where we may achieve conformity with the self-defining justice of his ways. Because we are able to subordinate ourselves to his will, we are not merely the passive objects of his tautologously just ways, but partakers and collaborators in that justice. This is what makes justice feel just to us and not feel like the purely arbitrary thing it could no doubt still justly be. We are able to love the just, to love the just, to feel that it is just according to our lights. To us, it doesn't feel arbitrary, and it shouldn't. After all, God has willed it. And so we may be brought to feel that he treats us justly because he gives us the freedom to choose justice, which he has very justly constituted so as to include our own freedom. Raphael's point is that since we are or will be in the dock, we, most, we feel most urgently the question of God's justice towards us, not towards, the, towards us, not towards the rest of the universe. That urgency is itself a strand of our intuition of what it would mean for God to be just to us and what it would mean, therefore, to justify the way he treats us. He would, first of all, have to treat us as though the urgency of the question mattered, as though it mattered that justice matters to us. We can call this component, sorry about the word, we can call this component of our intuition of what's necessary to justice, respect. Since I just quoted Raphael on God's right to dispose of his creatures as pleases him best, let me say a little more about that complex word, since Milton will use the word as a way of linking judgment and narrative. In the lines just quoted, Raphael is hedging the dilemma. What pleases God best may indicate his right to sheer arbitrary decision, or it may mean that what is independently just will always be what pleases him best. But we are not to know, or at least unfallen humans who have no need or interest in vindication are not to know. We are not privy to that story. Once we have fallen, God's disposals become the template, frame, or structure of narrative. So that Milton uses the word in Samson to mean both judgment and plot. What the unsearchable dispose of highest wisdom brings about is the conclusion of the story, says the chorus. The chorus's word, unsearchable, echoes the earlier characterization of God as the interminable. That is, no bonds bind God because there are no bounds to God. 
Here, unsearchable means baffling at the start so that we don't begin in a position to judge what God is doing, but we end in such a position, not only seeing that all is best, but being able to judge that it's best, being able to find it so. What God brings about is ever best found at the close, when God unexpectedly, as the chorus says, arranges a glorious resolution. Of course, the whole point of Samson is to show how these divine events can conform to tragic structure, and so the divine disposal or heavenly disposition of the quandary in which Samson finds himself echoes Milton's Aristotelian definition in the preface of plot as the disposition of the fable. In the end, the audience of men, the chorus, and Milton's readers will find that plot vindicates both God and Samson. Their supporters, those who trust in them, are likewise vindicated. The more trust they show, the greater their vindication. The chorus and Samson begin with what look like different ideas of divine disposal, but in the end, the two ideas merge. The chorus asks Samson not to tax divine disposal, because God has his reasons for having allowed it to be the case that even wisest men have erred. The chorus rightly sees Samson's error as fitting with some providential plan. There's no implication that Samson is predestined to err, only that is in other cases God didn't intervene to stop him through prevenient grace. Nevertheless, the chorus is too quick to exempt Samson from the task of judgment a task which he himself insists on 150 lines later when he corrects his father's complaint. A point not heavenly disposition, father. Nothing of all these evils hath befallen me, but justly I myself have brought them on. The poem's consistent analysis of the idea of disposition suggests that a significant part of God's plan, of the way he disposes the narrative, addresses itself to our judgment and not only to our wonder or submission. God's arrangement of the story encourages human judgment to reach the point where it deserves the vindication that it now knows to seek and to expect. Deserves vindication because it knows to seek and to expect it. Let's return to the invocation of Book One of Paradise Lost. It should be obvious by now that I don't mean to claim that there are two incompatible readings of the phrase justify the ways of God to men. I don't wish to identify paradise lost, um, line 26, as presenting a dilemma or paradox. Rather, I think that the combination of the two readings is the point. The question of justice is a central and consistent issue for human beings in a way that it isn't for any other intelligent creatures in Milton's universe. From the perspective of the universe, God can treat us as he treats anything at all by virtue of his own interminable and unbounded transcendence of all prescript. But from our perspective, we demand a sense that God is just according to our own judgments and our demand is a just one. By saying that our demand is just, I mean that what it means to be human or to be fallen humans includes a, leg a legitimate demand for an explanation of our punishment. To achieve salvation, we need to understand our situation. And to understand it, we need to be guided by something other than arbitrary prescript. The two readings of line 26, one, 
humans are capable of understanding the justice of all God's ways, and two, it is possible to justify to any rational intelligence the justice of the way God treats human beings. These two readings combine to suggest that if all of God's ways are just, the particular justice that the case of human beings requires is such that God's ways towards them must be justified to them. This may sound like a long way of saying that humans are entitled to judge the ways that God treats humans, but I have wanted to bring out the point that the way God treats humans is not a parochial question, but goes to the very heart of the question we humans have as to whether God is just. And if he is just, what that justice demands with respect to our own capacities to judge God. Justice in Milton, as in Christian theology generally, is always associated with punishment. The ways of God that require justification in Milton are God's ways with punishment. Indeed, Lawrence Thompson, who did the annotations to the Geneva Bible, annotates the verse from Psalm 145 that Milton had in mind by saying of David that he praiseth God not only for that he is beneficial to all his creatures, but also in that he justly punisheth punisheth the wicked. In Psalms and in Revelation, just punishment is not thought to require explanation. It is a principle of the universe, not a principle of argument. But I'm interested in, and I think Milton is interested in, the motives for the claim that it's a principle of the universe. A way of putting this is to ask what the relation is between vindication and punishment. Obviously, if vindication means the triumph of justice as a principle of the universe, and if justice requires the punishment of the wicked, die he or justice must, then vindication will require punishment. But the experience of vindication is a subjective one, hence the wishfulness that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. The subjective experience of vindication, which I anticipate, of the vindication which I anticipate, is one in which I feel that the punishment of my unjust adversary is a conclusive sign of his injustice. When we seek or anticipate vindication through punishment, the punishment is less an end in itself than an instrument of irrefutable demonstration to the evildoer that what he's done is evil. Perhaps now you will see how depraved you are. The psychology here seems to conform to the following syllogism. Punishment is just. You are being punished. You therefore must conclude that you are unjust. Such a syllogism, it's a self-reflexive syllogism, um, such a syllogism stands or falls upon the truth of its two premises. And we will tend to contest that syllogism when we are the objects of another's fantasies or procedures of vindication. We'll call it vindictiveness instead. But spite is just the name we give to actions that we don't regard as just or deserved punishment. It's false vindication, or at least that is what its objects will tend to think. The thought, that thought is what provokes Satan to fantasies of his own vindication. He sees God as spiteful and vindictive. Hence the rebel angel's complaint that fate, free virtue, should enthrall to force or chance. No rational beings, Milton would agree with Plato, would seek to battle against justice. Fantasies of revenge are always fantasies that the justice of the fantasizer's cause will be demonstrated. 
just punishment completes the demonstration. We don't tend to think much about whether punishment as, re or as retribution as such is just. The issue in the contention and mutual finger pointing and cycles of revenge that run so deep in human culture is whether the defeated person sees what has happened to her as oppression or as punishment. To agree that you've been punished rather than oppressed or wrongly injured is to agree that justice has prevailed, whether you like it or not. To deny that the injury you've experienced is punishment is to anticipate or wish for or fantasize about being vindicated through the just punishment of the injustice you see yourself as experiencing. Now, it's peculiarly difficult to represent or stage a plausibly satisfying moment of vindication between two antagonists. We anticipate the moment when our oppressor will be sorry and will be brought to see his depravity. But when we see that his antagonism has turned to regret, or at least to remorse, it's much harder to feel the satisfaction we've anticipated. We want him simultaneously to be the depraved evildoer and the remorseful acknowledger of his own depravity. But if he acknowledges it, he's not really so depraved any longer. And if he doesn't acknowledge it, we feel cheated of the satisfaction we've promised ourselves. The fantasy of his remorse is a future tense fantasy that's hard to bring into the present. Vindication in a binary relationship is relished in anticipation far more than in actuality. To insist on the depravity of the person who fully acknowledges his own remorse as you have wished him to begins to look like vindictiveness. And here you could think a little bit of Hamlet not killing Claudius at the moment that he, that he thinks that Claudius is at prayer. Um, the fact that Claudius seems remorseful is both something Hamlet has wanted from the start, from his first insults of Claudius, and something that he desperately doesn't want at this moment because um, it makes him fit and seasoned for the passage to heaven. So Hamlet wrongly thinks, but that's the psychology or part of the psychology of that moment. If narrative appeals to the anticipation of vindication, it also has to find a way around this inconsistency when it's time for the promised vindication in a narrative. In thinking simultaneously about justice and about narrative, Milton confronts this issue throughout his work, in his prose invectives too, of course, and the simultaneous consideration of justice and of narrative that structure them leads to Milton's deepest thinking on human subjectivity, thinking which comes to see or to claim as one of the most important elements of human subjectivity, its aptness to be changed and deepened by just such thinking. God's ways to men are justified through the way their justification to men leads men to a deeper concept of justice. And that deeper concept, I would say, is one which sees that justice towards souls who are real is what matters. It's God's ways to men that matters. A quick way to see this is to notice the chastening of the narrator in Paradise Lost, a chastening which leads him away from a vindictive or vengeful perspective. Recall Bacon's definition of revenge, wild justice. This is a particularly deep version of one effective, though subtle and difficult, narrative technique for managing vindicatory expectation. The person who promises herself vindication changes her goals as the story proceeds. 
the audience's goals change accordingly. Another more common technique is to split the incredulous whom we wish to see acknowledge the justice of our hero's cause into two groups. Those who perversely maintain their depraved refusal to see true justice and those who come to acknowledge it and who therefore reject their former allies in the first group. Um, you can think of the difference between Regan and Goneril on one hand and Edmund on the other hand in um, King Lear as representing those two different kinds of groups. Um, those who stay depraved till the very end and those who um, seek to do some good despite their own nature. And Shakespeare gives us both um, as a way of solving the fact that they're incompatible in a single person. We have it both ways, but only if there are degrees of villainy and if some of the villains change sides and begin approving the good or at least disapproving evil. These ideas combine in Milton preeminently and, and in many other narratives as well with the converse fact that in wanting vindication from one's enemy, one is showing that enemy the respect due to another person. Just to want vindication is to acknowledge the humanity of the person you resent for, you think, not acknowledging your own humanity. The split between those who do come to acknowledge your humanity and those who you imagine never do brings out much that is essential to what we want from vindication that there be an audience, how much vindication is, uh, I don't know what I was saying there, um, brings out how much it is essential to what we want from vindication that there be an audience. How much vindication is a relationship among three points of view because it is impossible between just two. The desire for justification and for vindication that provides the motives for characters and that issues in the narratives that they seek to affect requires an audience that will see the justice of their cause. That very requirement means that the narratives in which we seek to be seen as deserving human and humane treatment are narratives which also acknowledge the humanity of those whose acknowledgement we desire. Our discrimination between savable and depraved antagonists, a discrimination essential to the success of narrative, is what makes us human and what turns our desire for justice into a willingness to do justice to those who come to share, our de to share our desire. Narrative must discriminate not only between good guys and bad guys, but also between the redeemable and the irredeemable. Narrative satisfaction needs both. And the redeemable bad guys are those who have judged wrongly but will change their minds in the end and judge rightly. Narrative satisfaction requires the correction of judgment. It also requires a sense that those whose judgments and the actions they issue in are incorrigible deserve punishment. These general, I'll claim again universal, points are particularly important to Milton's thinking and not just his technique. The structure of justice is a literary structure, and this fact is something that Milton is overtly and consciously concerned with, so that for him, literature can give us insight into justice hence the preface to Samson, for the same reason that I am claiming that our deep intuitions about justice can give us insight into literature. Let me explicate these ideas briefly in Milton's major work. 
when Satan stands stupidly good in Book 9 at the sight of Eve, he is abstracted from his own evil. It cannot be otherwise. The moment when his malice is overawed is a moment when he can no longer be Satan. He's abstracted from his own character. He does not manifest some saving moment of judgment here. Rather, he loses all judgment and in doing so loses all moral status. To be human is to be susceptible to other humans' demands and judgments that one be human, which means to make such demands and judgments about other humans as well and to be judged by how well one makes them. To be human then requires judgment. But Satan isn't judging. He is paralyzed by the power of goodness, but paralyzed at a moment of pure perception. He loses contact with himself, with his will, let's say, which is for Milton the true faculty of judgment. Reason also is choice. Satan is choosing between the options, I'm sorry, the true faculty of judgment, choosing between the options offered by the more philosophically standard faculty of technical or calculating judgment. When he returns to himself, when Satan returns himself, he returns to the pleasures of narrative anticipation. Fierce hate he recollects, and all his thoughts of mischief gratulating excites. He takes pleasure in the revenge he foresees, and indeed understands that pleasure as the only joy left to him. The pleasure he takes is vindictive, that it that is, it is a debased form of a desire for vindication, as we've known from the start. He wishes God to see that he has failed to stop Satan, failed to make him feel chastened or chastised or justly punished, and he aims to make God aware of his own misjudgment, and so to correct God's failure to acknowledge what Satan believes himself to be. This is what animates Satan's planned vengeance, which intends that God at length from us may find who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. The point of vengeance is always to prove that point, and the fantasy of vengeance, as here, is to prove a point to the person who is the object of vengeance. God at first seems to be a mirror image of Satan, seems to be saying something similar in Book 3 when he foretells how Satan's desire for desperate revenge shall redound upon his own rebellious head. But God is indifferent to whether Satan experiences this lesson. For him, the punishment is in conformity with a non-human version of justice, one which doesn't need to prove to the punished person why he deserves punishment, nor to seek acknowledgment from him that he does. Um, I think this is a distinction that's made, um, I've been thinking recently, a distinction that Dante is making as well. Um, Dante, the pilgrim, Dante, the reporter, is very interested in the stories of those in hell. Um, but their stories don't teach them lessons, and um, their punishment isn't meant to teach them a lesson from a theological perspective. The punishments that um, the people in purgatory experience are meant to teach them a lesson. And the difference between being damned in Dante and being either saved or on the way to being saved is whether punishment aims at correcting the judgment of the soul who is punished or does not aim at correcting that judgment. Um, in the Inferno, there's no aim at correcting the punished soul's um, judgment in Purgatorio and in the lower levels of Paradise to the extent that there's something like punishment going on there. Um, it is aimed at making them um, think more truly and think more accurately about the justice of the universe. Um, so for 
Milton, divine justice isn't communication by other means as it is for human justice. Satan, of course, does acknowledge deserving punishment in the Book 4 soliloquy of self-castigation, but far from that soliloquy satisfying its angelic observers, it is made instead into a plot device, alerting with, alerting with some anxiety, alerting them with some anxiety to Satan's presence on earth. That is, no one is saying, oh good, Satan is upset. God has no need to have his justice acknowledged, perhaps because, like the chorus in Samson, he takes the strongly voluntaristic line that he defines justice rather than being defined by it. Satan's view of justice, alas, will end in a similarly aloof attitude in his book for meditation on the innocent Adam and Eve. Public reason just requires him to take revenge on them who wrong him not. But revenge on the innocent is the shocking an antipodal, antipodal opposite of the communication that we've been treating as a mark of respect, even within anger and resentment. God's indifference to Satan is a sign of his absolute withdrawal of respect, which Satan may deserve. But Satan's indifference to Adam and Eve's innocence, which they don't deserve, means that he is almost without any communicative intent towards them, even when he imagines addressing them in Book 4. He makes them pawns, not persons. They are his Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. God, too, is as indifferent to the human understanding of the requirements of justice as Satan is. He doesn't care whether he's justified to men. But that indifference is part of our deserved punishment, whereas Satan's indifference to us isn't. It is in this context that the son's judgment of Adam and Eve is at once condemning and saving. He does treat humans as worthy of understanding our own failing, as beings who can acknowledge our own injustice. The crucial characterization of the son's judgment confirms the way he treats us as fully human. So judged he, man, both judge and savior sent, and thought not much to clothe his enemies. Notice that by this point, the narrative of vindication that we've relished from the start the desperate revenge that will redound on the rebellious head of the malefactor has been reversed. We are no longer those who seek the acknowledgement of those who have wronged us, but those who acknowledge the wrong we've done. Refuting Satan is no longer the goal that the narrative of Paradise Lost proposes to us. Milton will, of course, make this refutation the stake of Paradise Regained, but there, too, the sun is above anxiety for proof and reproof so decisive that Satan will admit the truth of his own depravity and the sun's transcendent goodness. He knows the lesson that Adam and Eve must learn, that Satan isn't the point. Truth is. What this means is that Paradise Lost offers a tutorial in narrative judgment, which is to say, as I've been arguing, in judgment to Cor. Here too, it is like Hamlet, which also has fate or circumstance or the unfolding of event or story tutoring both its main character and its audience. Just as the Hamlet of Act 5 no longer seeks the revenge whose assignment by the ghost he had so euphorically relished, neither do we humans, represented as we are by Adam and Eve, by the end of Paradise Lost, seek that euphoric revenge. The work can be seen as developing a sequence of ideas about the subtle and difficult balance between vindictiveness and vindication. Satan's study of revenge treats God seriously as a person, though mistakenly, both in imagining that God cares, caring is a human attitude, which is why the son cares, 
but not a divine one, and in imagining that God will entertain the possibility that he misjudged Satan when he sees that Satan is not entirely defeated. God's joke to the son about how Satan is unstoppable, that's the first thing God says is try to keep him in hell, but he just broke through, there's nothing we can do. God's joke to the son about how Satan is unstoppable is a crude and vicious parody of derision. But it's the still developing narrator who writes this scene for a still naive readership. It's the narrator's early attempt to split God's judgment of Satan from God's desire to make Satan feel and know that he deserves this judgment. God jeers at Satan, but not so that Satan hears it. This is serene contempt expressed only to the son and not, like most expressions of contempt, one mode of soliciting the jeered at person to acknowledge their inferiority. I am not arguing that God's character changes in the course of the poem. His characterization does. The more subtle the narrator becomes, the more his narrative diverges from Raphael's. Raphael, like the fallen angels, has never learned the human lesson about judgment and justice that the poem teaches Adam and Eve and teaches the narrator and teaches us. I've argued elsewhere that God doesn't appear in the poem, only his caricature constructed for the shallow judgments of the angels. I back up this claim partly through citing the passage in On Christian Doctrine where Milton appeals to 1 Timothy 6.16 where Paul says that God dwelleth in the light that none can attain unto, whom never man saw, neither can see, unto whom be honor and power everlasting. A verse Milton partially translates in the invocation of Book 3, never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity. In De Doctrina, he interprets this passage as well as some others to mean, it follows, therefore, that whoever was heard or seen was not God. This means that it is always erroneous for the humans or the vindictive fallen angels or the triumphant loyal angels to look to God for the kind of pleasurable judgment that narrative anticipates. Abdiel is rewarded, vindicated we might say, but he doesn't act in view of vindication. God is a judge, but not one for whom things come out one way or another. His judgment is neither vindicated nor does it vindicate others, as a more primitive or magical view of God would believe. God is not the audience of a story which he will then judge, his judgment ratifying our position, so we hope, once he hears it all. The anthropology of monotheism involves the development of you'll see impulses into God will see, the moment of narrative triumph, and then he'll make you see. But Milton's God has moved even beyond that. He may have moved beyond it, but the poem's task is to show humans how to do so. One way to see the features in which Milton's conception of judgment exceeds that of the angels is to look at God's final speeches in Paradise Lost and in Milton. Despite the narrator's claim in the invocation of Book 7 that the second half of Paradise Lost will all occur on Earth, we return to heaven for a moment, privileged, perhaps, to observe this last scene from and because of the son's human perspective, a, pers a perspective we didn't have in Book 3, let alone in Raphael's narration. Here, God sounds very different from the contemptuously derisive figure he's cut in Books 3 and 5. He tells the son his judgment and explains that death is not penalty and punishment, but man's final remedy. All earlier accounts of death have seen it as the simultaneous punishment and sign I've been analyzing. The idea that part of punishment is the very fact that it is denounced, 
to use Adam's word, or proclaimed, and not only the experience that the proclamation points to. Being mortal proves you're wrong. But this is not what God is saying here. Punishment is also a remedy for, and not just a badge of, human depravity. Thus, we should not lay too much emphasis on the more priggish priggish speech he then delivers to the synod of the blessed, to whom he announces the judgment he has just told the son about. There he speaks in the narrative mode appropriate to their complacent expectation of eternal vindication, and again denounces the punishment of Adam and Eve, despite the fact that they may boast of their new knowledge. What sort of boasting would this be? The boasting of the victor, as in Satan's triumphant speech about their fall, which ends in the hisses he least expects. Those hisses represent hate Satan's comeuppance, but Adam and Eve are far from boasting, and no view of this sad sentence, where death, as I've already said, where death, as I've said, is a remedy, not a punishment, can see it as comeuppance. No view except perhaps that of the angels who do not have human depth of judgment. It's this very fact that can be seen in Raphael's account of God in Book 5, so like the narrators in Book 1, in aiming to make punishment a conclusive demonstration of the superiority of the punisher, riding the chariot of paternal deity, superiority to both those who fail to punish despite their goodwill and those who are punished. This is, what, this is the might-makes-right doctrine that the rebel angels rightly reject. We can summarize briefly the developing sense of judgment in Paradise Lost in order to show how it parallels the poem's developing deepening of human subjectivity by showing how the narrative and the narrator alter their intuition of what it would look like to wish for justice. Some important milestones in the narrator's point of view would be, and here's that list, um, first Satan's desire for revenge, two, God's derision of Satan for thinking that revenge will have any efficacy, three, God's description of the innocent Adam and Eve already as ingrates as though he wants to teach them a lesson that they do not yet have any occasion to learn. Four, Satan's own inherently unstable self-judgment in book four, which shows the limits of narrative's paradoxical goal of combining depravity with our desired experience of seeking punishment acknowledged as deserved, our impossible to de desire to see the depraved evildoer willingly vindicate his punisher while remaining depraved. Five, Satan's depraved view that he can justly punish Adam and Eve for what has been done to him. For us, this means that he does not treat them with respect, does not treat them as humans who will both suffer his punishment and acknowledge its appropriateness, thus fully vindicating the punisher, as Satan had almost acknowledged it earlier in book four, ah, wherefore he deserved no such return from me. Six, the scorn traded between Gabriel and Satan, each jeering at the other, and Satan's shock that he's not recognized. That is, that he's becoming a figure whom the unfallen angels are personally indifferent to. Seven, Raphael's view that God would jeer at Satan, despite our own increasing understanding that judgment and jeering are not the same thing. Eight, Abdiel's willingness to tell Satan the truth, whether Satan believes it or not. Nine, the judgment Adam pronounces on Eve to himself before his fall, but still a judgment where he has entered so deeply into human subjectivity that he reacts not with a desire for vindication or a sense of superiority, but with grief. Ten, 
the fall as regression from the understanding manifested by Adam in 9, such understanding being what now has to be won again. 11, the son's attention to the two narratives of Adam and Eve and his judgment of them in a way that neither vindicates them nor treats them vindictively and their similar attitudes towards each other, tutored in humanity by the greatest of humans, the greater man. 12, the self-trivialization of Satan, his regression from all human respect, both when he is stupidly good and when he is hissed in hell. 13, God's judgment in book 11, and the way it shows how human understanding exceeds angelic understanding. And 14, the narrators and our own far deeper understanding of judgment without vindication or vindictiveness by the end of the poem. Satan's greatness and depth measure the nature of the paradox described in point four in that list. It is here that the poem begins taking the experience of being truly punished as its subject instead of the experience of desiring to punish. In attempting to think through his own situation, Satan shows what thought looks like when it's not self-justifying. He can't sustain this way of thinking, but this episode transposes the key of the poem. It's at, the, it's at this point that Paradise Law starts reworking the most fundamental relationships among subjectivity, narrative, and justification. We begin judging God, but in the end, we judge the significance of the fact that we are able to judge at all. A good feature of this claim is that this is a central and, ob and obvious theme in Paradise Lost. I will place within them as a guide my umpire conscience. Its moral from God's point of view might be this, that for God, the punishment of humans includes human understanding of why we're punished, the beginning of correction, whereas, like Dante in hell, he is indifferent to the rebel's failure to understand the justice of their own punishment. I think it's important to note here that what makes this fact significant from our perspective and what makes it worth a narrative poem that aspires to heroic name is that human judgment is by its nature narrative and therefore by its nature always has others in view. I don't mean the judgment is self-dramatizing, though of course it may be. I mean that we judge human interiority, which means we plumb the depths of that interiority in order to judge. And we judge for human interiority which means that the very act of judging oneself or another is an act which acknowledges the reality and depth of the other. We judge because we care about the subjective experience of other human beings, about the story of their interior lives. Even hatred involves respect. Um, one Kantian argument, Kant supported the death penalty. And the argument that he made for the death penalty is that not to impose the death penalty when, when deserved is to fail to respect the criminal, fail to respect the person who is going to, um, going to submit to that punishment, um, to treat them as though they're just some freak of nature not worth being punished by the death penalty. So Kant saw the death penalty as a sign of respect and that's the um, idea that I'm pushing here. We judge God's ways towards humans because those humans are the only beings in the universe who can care about their fellows deeply enough to be able to judge God's ways towards them, towards all of us. The desire for vindication is the uniquely human starting point of acknowledging the subjective existence of others. But the end point, at least in Paradise Lost, is the deep and chastened achievement of an acknowledgement of their existence 
even when the dramas of vindication and vindictiveness, those rejected subjects listed in the invocation of Book Nine have been left behind. Thank you. I got a lot, sure. <laughs> yes, Deborah. Um, two things. That was very interesting. Um, one, and this may be utterly useless, or one more useful, one more maybe useless, but in my effort to memorize the OED, I came across um, vindication last night, or vind, vind, what is it? vindicate, the verb, to vindicate. So I was reading to vindicate last night, and it's the strangest history, and actually the OED is wrong, but it because what I was actually reading was a 1625 work on contract and debt. And it kept talking about vindicating one's right and vindicating a piece of property or vindicating an office. And you vindicate all the time in a sense of which I was not familiar. So OED says that 1623, vindicate in the sense you're using it, it's revenge, as punish, comes into English. And that in the sense I was using it, it shows up in the 1690s or even once said 1725, but it's already there in 1625. So they come in simultaneously. Oh, wow. In these two, as far as I can tell, utterly different senses of vindicate, both show up in English right about 1625. And I don't know whether that's at all helpful, but there's something's happening with the word vindicate. And it's, and it's being used in context. It has a, a semantic range which is different from the way we hear it now. Yeah, um, but what it, I can imagine hearing a phrase like vindicate a claim. Yeah, vindicate a claim, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's not, there's no sense of punishment there. It's to, it's to lay claim to something. But there is a sense of judgment. That there's is, there's, judgment there's conflict, but, but yeah. There's not, there's not that revenge element of it, and it's, it's um, it, it, it has to do with whether the word could have two possible etymologies, and they sort of... Oh, really? Oh, that's really interesting. Like one has to do with DK, and the other has to do with decore, uh -huh. to, to, to say something. Right, right. But the other thing I was thinking of is that I sometimes teach legal history, and one of the things that was most interesting to me is that Kantian notion of punishment does not exist in 16th, 17th century. That's the point of vindicta mihi dixit dominus in the, um, whatever that play is, that um, put the box in it, that, Kids, Avengers tragedy, mm -hmm. tragedy. Um, vindication, revenge, avenging is God's law. That human justice, I mean, they all recognize it as a possibility and all deny that human justice may have that in the only place Cousins' um, apology for ecclesiastical law allows it in the case of animals that. Um, like the ducks that failed to quack when the Goths came to Rome uh -huh. and put to death. That that's vindication. They're punished for what they did. Whereas all human punishment has to have either correction or the safety of the community or restitution to a person injured or deterrence. It has to have some other corrective <coughs> object besides rather than, not just besides, but rather than the penal, because mm -hmm. it was wrong. Yeah. And it's Kant who rejects all of that, who makes all justice penal, mm -hmm. um, and who gives, including human justice. In Catholic theology, suffering 
is usually understood as penal. Yeah. So that the souls in purgatory are being punished. It may Dante and Aquinas are somewhat unique in seeing it as a corrective form of punishment, mm -hmm. but it is punishment for what you've done. It's a position that the reformers largely reject. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tyndall's eloquent on this, but he keeps talking about children. And it seems to me that within an evolutionary perspective, that what we do to a child is put a fork near the, the life socket, and that, you know, is, which is not punishment at all. I mean, we're not, it's not because they, there was any malice or wrong in the moral sense of the child's actions, they didn't electrocute themselves. It's corrective. Mm -hmm. And that much of what feels much suffering that God imposes is in fact meant, among other things, to win us from love of this world. I mean, it's the whole thing that the angel lays out to Adam, I'm not a love thy life nor hate it, but what thou has to live, live well. Um, and so that's, I think, a much more important dimension of the, you know, much, you know, the, the, this, this element of, of suffering, of, of response to wrongdoing, um, is dis what we call, we call disciplinary rather mm -hmm. than penal. Well, so that, that's extremely helpful. Um, I think you may think we're disagreeing more than I think we're disagreeing. No, I'm not, I'm just, it just, it's yeah. almost just a historical that there's yeah, no, no, that's I think we're actually agreeing. I just think that the Kantian terminology obscures some of the points you were making, which, would, which in a Renaissance context would say that you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, <laughs> I, I, I can accept that. Um, I think one of, the, one of the words that I'm interested in um, and that you use several times is the idea of correction, um, where um, I think although I haven't um, gone into this enough, that um, correction is also, when we talk about houses of correction, um, the correction is a social one. It's not a correction of the um, person who's committed the crime. If you think of Richard II, where um, Gaunt says, correction lieth in those hands that made the fault that we cannot correct. Um, it's correction of um, the state of the world, um, not that Richard has to be corrected so he'll be a better person, although Gaunt will try to get that um, um, happening also on his deathbed, but that the world is askew, um, but that it's up to God to make it not askew. And um, that idea, I mean, I think that what happens a lot in Shakespeare, um, and I'm much more confident about talking about these issues in Shakespeare than in Milton, but what happens a lot in Shakespeare um, is the question of responsibility for how things are tends to be a, um, viewed differently um, in the generations that are in conflict in most Shakespeare plays. So that for Gaunt's and York's um, generation and the generation that Richard has one foot in, um, it's uh, that this is the state of the world and the idea that um, you would um, get someone to say, oh no, I'm, I'm a jerk. Um, that's just not part of it. But then when you have um, Mo Mowbray and Bolingbroke at the very start of the play trading accusations, um, the contempt that they have for each other individually and um, the, the um, anger with which they're trying, each is trying to get the other to acknowledge that he's a liar um, is, is what distinguishes them from the previous generation. Um, but the word correction is a really interesting one um, because 
what it would mean for things to be all correct. Um, that's something that's in contention. But yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. I'll let you know when I get to next. Okay. Are you really memorizing? No. <laughs> I, there people do such things. <laughs> but what do you mean by correct? <laughs> Mark. I, I have only a flat foot way of asking this. Because Paradise Lost wanted to be a novel for you. In the, yeah. the move from theology to psychology, to put it in the flattest way, or let's say um, the appropriateness of, of Kant's uh, formulation in relation to a history of the novel that isn't there in what I'm looking at. Obviously, you're Yes, it does. It really does want to be a novel. Are we disagreeing about that then? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Could, couldn't be more extreme in, in the pulse of our difference, yeah. Okay, that's easy. <laughs> Thanks, I'm sorry it's a little long. Um, it would have been longer if I talked it out. <laughs> Is this in, in the book, which I bought, but I have not? No, it's yet. not. But so I, is this like a new, a new project? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I'll send you a copy if you want. That would be great. I'll okay. send you a like, bit far from the book. Yeah. Well, my radar, the, the, like, the, Okay, great. Yeah, that's good. I know. Oh, thank you. I was doing my master's. I actually did a, a very hard job, but uh, I wrote a paper on Milton and people were uh, Oh, wow. Paradise Lost, so it was really interesting. They did a much more um, well-through version of that. So. Oh, thank you. What's your name? I'm James. Hi, James. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great. Well, thank you. So you're going to hang around in LA? We're going to uh, San Francisco tomorrow. Oh, great. Yeah. Did you have any time here, or are you just like... Yeah, we got here Tuesday night. We went to the Clippers game last night. Oh, my God. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we hung out yesterday. Yeah. And, and have you been in San Francisco for a little while? And, um, just till Sunday. We're going back to Boston. Oh, my gosh. It's school vacation week. Oh! So, that's good. <laughs> my son was fencing in Salt Lake City. So wow. He came here through Salt Lake City. Oh. So it's basically been... It's going to be, what, 12 days off for you, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Great trip. Well, thank you. Nice yeah. to see you. Was there wine? Yeah.